Well, hey there, Todd. We're we're back again, and I really enjoyed your conversation about Alfred Marsh and his his kindness. And I know that uh, uh, that a lot of that is rubbed off on you. And and I'm uh, I'm also really interested in what you have to say about uh, the Reverend Doctor Jackson. Well, thanks again, Rob. Uh, this is kind of a continuum of the years in Boston. Um, this was a experience that changed my life. And so there was a fellow up there that was on the faculty at the uh, New England Institute by the name of the Reverend Dr. Edgar N. Jackson. He was, um, besides my grandmother, I would say that he might qualify as the most seminal human being that has had influence uh, upon me in my life. His, uh, he was a Methodist minister, but he was also a trained psychotherapist. And he uh, had a, ch a church in Maramnock, Long Island, New York. Um, and, and then he went to, he had churches different places. He went to Yale University. And, um, but he ended up this uh, author, uh, and in 1957, he wrote a book called Understanding Grief. And what was interesting about this was I read the book uh, when I had first started out in funeral service. And what was interesting about this book was that it was predated, it predated Kubler-Ross by 10 years, almost 10 years. Well, no, actually more, because Kubler-Ross wrote on death and dying in 1969, and Edgar Jackson wrote Understanding Grief in 1957. It's an excellent book. Um, and Jackson's, uh, the, the, later in life, they did a little film about him. And I remember the interviewer was Vic Scalisi from Boston. He drove out to Corinth, Vermont, where Jackson lived. And he asked him why he wrote that book. And Dr. Jackson, uh, vintage response was, I needed to write the book. I had to write the book. And what he meant by that was that in like 1955, he had a little boy named Edgar Duval Jackson, who was a three-year-old, kind of a toddler. And Mrs. Jackson was canning uh, uh, preserves and uh, vegetables in their kitchen. She had a scalding hot pot of water going, canning these, uh, sterilizing these uh, ball mason jars. And that little boy tipped over that damn pot of scalding water and it covered him and he had this hideous death and and then when I was in mortuary school which is just as uh, there Jackson had another son named James and James took his own life while we were in school together now I tell you all that not to elicit uh, any drama or theatrics, but the depth um, and the substance of Jackson's 
thinking about the value, purpose, and benefit of the funeral absolutely changed everything that I thought about the value, purpose, and benefit of the funeral. In fact, when Jackson wrote the book, Understanding Grief, uh, this, the story, I think, is valuable to your listeners because the book was published and was in the Cokesbury Bookstore front window in Minneapolis. The National Funeral Directors Convention was in Minneapolis that year, and a man who was a tremendous contributor to the benefit of the funeral profession, Robert Slater, who was the director of the mortuary science program at the University of Minnesota, was walking down a street in Minneapolis going to a session for the NFDA convention. And he looked in this window and he saw this book that said, Understanding Grief. And Bob Slater, who eventually became a good friend, uh, went to the convention and he looked at all the funeral directors. He had a copy of the book. He said, we need to understand this. And, and it was the funeral directors, not the clergy. It was the funeral community that embraced this subject of the psychology of grief. Still to this day, rarely do seminaries have a required course in the psychology of grief. Mortuary colleges are the only academic institutions that have not an elective, but a required course in order to graduate, you have to take this class. And so the funeral directors jumped on this in a big way, all right? So in the midst of this, so you had these, so, so this was 1957. So by 1960, right, NFDA and the University of Minnesota and Edgar Jackson were, they had synergies together and they were working together. So at that time, NFDA had a tremendous relationship with the University of Minnesota because Bob Slater and Howard Rather, who was the executive director of NFDA, were very good friends. And in the mix of this comes Dr. Jackson, who is kind of the intellectual, uh, the, the writer in the group, the one that can take what people are feeling and thinking and put it into words and get it published as a book. And, he's mot and his motivation, of course, as with a lot of us that deal with this subject, is our own losses and our own sorrows and our own griefs in our own life, right? So it isn't an issue of an expert. It's an issue of a mission. It's an issue of focusing upon a mission in life motivated by your own life experiences. So, so the three, these three, NFDA, University of Minnesota and Jackson, they're starting to put things together. And about the same time, Bob Fulton starts the Center for Death Education up at the University of Minnesota. So you had this, this wonderful kind of creative, finally somebody is putting together 
the psychology behind the sociology, the philosophy, the theology behind the value, purpose, and benefit of death rituals, ceremonies, and rites. Then in 1963, uh, Jessica Mitford writes The American Way of Death. Fortuitously, NFDA had Edgar Jackson in their bailiwick up there and Edgar Jackson is the intellectual that NFDA sent out to do battle with Jessica Mitford. <clears throat> and so from that, from that now, Edgar Jackson ended up writing some, some of the best books concerning our profession that I've ever encountered. In fact, when I teach psychic grief, I still use Jackson's stuff because I found no thinker uh, yet, none of them, that are, uh, some are equal to, to be sure, but none superior to Jackson's approach to this. So when I was looking to go to mortuary school, I'd already read Understanding Grief while I was working at Hefe's because I was insatiable and I still am. This is, this is, I, I just don't know why I don't get bored with, I'm insatiable about knowledge about funeral service. Um, and there's always something new to learn out there. There's always something new to learn if one just looks. And I'm going to go back to that. If one just looks idea, because I learned that from Jackson. And remind me of this, Rob, if I forget to tell you about the treasure hunt, all right? So when Jessica comes out with this, Edgar Jackson goes, he's the one they send out to do the point-counterpoint stuff that was popular back in those days. And he wrote an editorial about Jessica Mitford where he started to go down the psychology of her own experiences with death, grief, and bereavement. And they weren't good, right? They weren't, they weren't positive. She, she, like a lot of us, had a lot of baggage uh, in her life of unresolved losses, such as the death of her first husband, the death of a child, the expulsion of her family from England, because they, the Mitford sided with the Nazis on the run-up to the First World War. Um, it was a rough, it was a rough thanatological history. There wasn't any question about it. And so Jackson um, ends up writing How to Tell a Child About Death, You and, you and Your Grief, Understanding Loneliness, the Christian funeral, um, he had a, the Many Faces of Grief, which is one of the best books on grief that I've ever read in my life. And Jackson, uh, I when I was looking at mortuary schools, and remember, I didn't choose the mortuary school based on proximity, or I surely would not have gone to Boston from Iowa uh, to go to school. I chose it based upon uh, Boston itself, 
and also that they did their anatomical dissections at the Harvard Medical School, and also because I saw Edgar Jackson was on their faculty. And when I saw that Edgar Jackson was on their faculty, that was the deal sealer. That was, I'm going to Boston, come hell or high water. I've never been there. I know nothing about it, but I have to be under this man's guidance. I have to sit in a class and listen to what he has to say. And it changed my life. He was a master when he would start to talk. And he took a very ministerial attitude toward it, right? And I still do that. I will always go the ministerial side of our profession before I start going the business side of it, right? I will always go on the issue of helping people at any and all costs, rather than how much is it going to cost us to help these people and how much are we going to get back from it, right? Now, I know a lot of your listeners will say, well, uh, of course, Todd would say that because he's been a flop uh, at business and all of this type of thing, which is, I think, fair, a fair indictment, et cetera. However, I also am a big believer on Newtonian physics, right? For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction so that the more kindness you show to people, it may not come back to you in a bank account, but it sure as hell will come back to you in good things. Uh, and my life has been a good example, I think, that that Newtonian physics law is absolutely true. And Jackson knew it also, right? He was a master at this stuff. And, and the other thing about uh, Jackson and, and NEI, right? And I forgot to say this in the last section, was right across the street from the mortuary school was not just Fenway Park, but uh, was J.S. Waterman and Son Mortuary. And the manager of J.S. Waterman and Son's funeral home was James Cutler at the time we were in school. And James Cutler taught us mortuary administration, right? The key to the Waterman-Jackson connection was the Coconut Grove fire in Boston in 1944, right? Where six, 450 people are killed in this fire. And some of your listeners are familiar with the famous study that was done by Dr. Eric Lindemann. Uh, Edgar Jackson, uh, and it was called The Symptomatology and Management of Acute Grief. And in that article, uh, they studied 100 survivors of the Coconut Grove fire. And out of the 100, 33 of the survivors actually got sick. They got ulcerative colitis. They developed an asthmatic condition, or they developed rheumatoid arthritis. Now, we know today that much of that, none of, most of the, those three are also psychologically uh, clinical in, uh, in experiences where your emotional health or the lack thereof will affect our, your arthritic conditions, uh, asthma, and also, and particularly ulcerative colitis, right? The T cells and all of the biochemistry of grief that we understand today 
that they did not understand in 1944 when this fire happened. Well, Jackson was a chaplain at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And after the fire was over, Dr. Lindemann and Dr. Jackson began to notice that people that had survived the fire and were dismissed from the burn unit were four months, uh, six weeks later, being readmitted to the Mass General, but now they're in the Department of Psychiatric Care. So these men, and, and Waterman's got involved with this because Waterman's is where all the victims of the Coconut Grove fire were taken after the, um, after the blaze. They were, all the bodies were taken to the Waterman garage uh, over in West Roxbury. The building's still there. It's over by the West Roxbury VA hospital. <clears throat> so what they found, and Jackson was a tremendous believer in this because of this, the people that got sick with the three biggies, the ulcerative colitis and the rheumatoid arthritis and asthma, the one thing they all had in common was they could not recall a clear image of the dead body. They had not seen the dead body that had created their grief. And so Dr. Lindemann and Jackson were both very clear that the greatest thing that, that the greatest thing that happens in a funeral home is not when you hit the button at the retort. It's not when you turn the damn uh, 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 the uh, porta boy or the injector on. It's not when you address it. It's when a family comes in and establishes the psychology of the reality of death. Right. It is the greatest asset that the funeral home has. Now, there's going to be many of your listeners that are going to poo-poo that. I've never moved off of that because I believe they were spot on about the psychology of establishing the reality of death. And Edgar Jackson was seminal about that. And so I started following him around. I don't know if any of you ever had a little puppy dog where they just follow you around. They just follow you around, right? And you don't even know why they're following you around. But I was like a little puppy dog with Dr. Jackson. I would just follow him around. I'd follow him around the mortuary school. He'd go to lunch. I'd follow him out onto Beacon Street. And finally, he started to ask me to join him for lunch because I, you know, what, the, what was he going to do with me? All right, I was this pest. Um, I wasn't socially astute enough to know exactly who he was, or I would have been so damned intimidated by him. But he asked me to sit down with lunch with him, and and then he would invite me out to Corn Vermont for the weekend, and we would talk. And his favorite thing, and then I was going to auctions, farm auctions, in. Vermont. I don't know if any of you have ever gone to a farm auction in Vermont, up in the mountains, right? All right. Every conceivable piece of junk that God's ever put on this earth or on these farms. And that's, and so we would go, we would get up at five o'clock in the morning, dead a winner in Vermont, right? go to these farm auctions and we'd stay there all day and he wouldn't bid on anything, nothing. 
all we would do is walk around, walk around, walk around, walk around, walk around. Until the end of the auction, the last, the sun setting. And the auctioneers in Vermont had this thing called the treasure chest. And everything they couldn't sell, they'd throw in this great big box. And that's what you bid on, right? So these boxes were big. And that's the only thing Dr. Jackson would bid on. He would wait the whole day and the last thing he'd bid on, he might get the treasure chest for 25 cents, right? And I remember I'm freezing, it's raining, sleeting, snowing. I'm up there with a bunch of Vermont farmers and we got this box of junk and he walk over, open it up and he start going through the junk. <clears throat> And finally, one day I looked at him. In fact, I told this story at his funeral because I was asked to speak at his funeral when he died in 1994. I said, why, why do we do, why, why do we do this? Why, why, do, why do we spend the entire day here and you bid on this? And he looks at me with this kind of surprised look on his face. And he goes, because this is how life is. He said, life's a box of junk. Life's a big box of junk. Ah, but if I'm careful and I go through this junk very carefully, I always find a treasure. There's always something in this box that is meaningful. I got to tell you, my listeners, hot damn, is that good or what? because he was spot on that stuff, absolutely spot on. Uh, he had this great capacity uh, for embracing the vulnerable and the disenfranchised in life. And um, so anyway, um, one day he comes to Des Moines, Iowa. His aunt lived at Wesley Manor in Des Moines. She was like 210 years old, right? I mean, this old lady's up. So he comes out to visit her. And I drove down to Vermont, or uh, excuse me, down to Des Moines, because I had my little funeral homes in Iowa at the time. And we go to Babe's Restaurant in downtown Des Moines for lunch, and we're sitting there. And, and, and this is how he changed my life. Right. It, because truly, truly, if it hadn't been for this conversation, I would not have I would not be here. I would not have written. I would not have been a speaker. I would not I would not have done it. Right. Because I had such a low self image of myself for a variety of reasons. Um, and so we're at the lunch and we're just eating. And I, and I, I thought I was going to be, I thought he was going to approve of what I was going to tell him. And I said, well, Dr. Jackson, I want to let you know, I, I went to a grief seminar the other day at uh, Coe College in Cedar Rapids. Nothing, absolutely nothing. He just, just kept eating, didn't say a word. Finally, I said, did you hear what I said? I went to a grief seminar. And finally, he just looked at me, took his soup spoon, put it down, and he looked at me and goes, why did you do that? 
I said, well, because I, I want to, I want to improve myself. And he looks at me and he goes, why are you going to grief seminars? I said, because I want to improve myself. And he goes, that's the wrong answer. I said, why are you going to grief seminars? I said, well, I, <laughs> I, I said, well, I don't know. I don't know why I'm going to him. And he said, exactly. He said, you should be teaching them. You shouldn't be going to them anymore. You should be teaching them. I can't tell you enough. I was absolutely dumbfounded because I looked at him and he was not bullying me in the least. And, and I'll tell you what, you know, I hope your viewers don't think I'm bragging about this. From there, from then, I went to seminary, right? And I went to seminary because he pushed me to do that. Because he said, if you want to understand the subject of death, you need to go to seminary because that's where they talk about this stuff. They don't talk about it in MBA programs. They don't talk about it at law school unless it's the wills and estates, right? You want to talk about death, seminary's the place to go. Now, you might not agree with all of it, but that's where you need to go. So I remember going out to seminary, and remember, I'm a crummy student, right? And so, you know, my high school uh demons are still with me that I'm never going to pull this off. I'm never going to graduate. So I'm sitting there and my file, my file, my admissions file is sitting there on the desk. And I had asked Dr. Jackson to give me a recommendation for the seminary in Cincinnati. And I remember the rector of the seminary got up to leave the office and I couldn't take it. See the file, my files right there on the desk. I couldn't take it. I could not take it. So I turned the file around and I opened it up and I started going down through it and I'm reading what, and I came to his recommendation and there's the sheet. And you know, what he had on it. All he said that he was one of the best students I've ever had. Wow. That was it. That was it. He changed my life. All for the good. All for the good. Well, what a what a valuable but, relationship, Todd. And uh, yeah. and I think um, it was a, it was a showstopper. There's no doubt. No doubt. You've had some great, great people influence your life and and you know because you you haven't used it just the one time about people have changed your life and and i think too whether people call it the butterfly effect or you may not be getting financial gain from from this but from those lessons and then you taking those lessons and with your dedication to funeral service and and then you then sharing it and passing it on and you know i'm, I'm sure there's not many people around that are sharing information about Dr. Jackson anymore, but once again, you have, and, and then this will continue to go on. So I'm sure an investment of time well spent on his behalf because you've taken it further from here. Well, thank you, Rob. That's very kind of you to say. That's the story about Dr. Jackson. Great. 
Okay, well let's uh, let's wrap this one up here, and then we'll we'll chat again next time. Thanks, Todd. I I really appreciate this story. Yeah, thank you very much for having me.